You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. There's no effective prayer life. Involved in sexual immorality, no effective prayer life. Cheating on your taxes, what kind of prayer life do you have? No. No. Uh, You're a Christian, you cheated on the exam at school, what kind of prayer life? You see how these things are connected? Clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And then catch this fourth one. Above all, above all, love each other deeply. Prayer connects us to our Heavenly Father. If you're living in isolation from Him, even after asking Him to save your soul, you can expect your flesh to maintain a destructive hold on you. Sins that have plagued you for years will continue to plague you, and might even grow worse. It might be hard to hear, but you can't blame God for that. As Pastor Danny will challenge you in today's message, if you want to start living a purposeful, successful spiritual life, you need to commit to time in prayer. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 with today's edition of The Living Word. First Peter chapter 4, we left off verse 7. We're just going to read the opening line and don't read ahead. You just want to hear what the Lord says in this opening statement. The end of all things is near. What a statement. Obviously, he's talking about uh, Christ and his second coming. Peter, the other apostles, expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. And, of course, he didn't. And now some 2,000 years later, he still has not returned. Uh, why? Well, Peter will tell us in Second Peter, it's so other people might be saved. That the, the delay is a divine purpose because God wants more people to be saved. If Jesus would have come back 100 years ago, I'd have never been conceived. I'd never have an opportunity for eternal life. So I'm glad he waited until I was born uh, because I'm looking forward to heaven. How close are we? to Jesus' second coming. Well, we're 2,000 years closer than when this was penned, right? Now, I could get off on this because I love prophecy, but prophecies dealing with the second coming, many of them have to do with the nation of Israel. And for years, uh, Israel was not a nation. But thank God, 1967, 1968, and the events that took place in a very rapid period of time, Israel has become a nation again. And so we know We're closer now. When you read the book of Revelation, and even though it's sad, it's alarming, during that final seven-year period before Jesus comes, known as the Great Tribulation, uh, half the world population will perish in world war like we've never seen before. That's what's prophesied there. You would no doubt have to have modern military capability for those number of people to die in such a short period of time. Well, we're living in that age. Technology for the mark of the beast, I mean, years People would read the mark of the beast, you know, and a number 
on your forehead, right hand, and you can't buy and sell unless you have it. Well, that doesn't cause us any wonder. It's either a microchip, and even now they're even doing tattoos to do those kind of things. So we have the technology for the mark of the beast. Uh, One of the most exciting to me is Ezekiel 38 prophesies an alliance of nations that will uh, come together against Israel in the last days. And two of the nations mentioned there, Russia and ancient Persia, which is modern Iran, never before in the history of the world has there been a military alliance between ancient Persia, modern-day Iran, and Russia. But there is today. You're living. I'm living. We're living in that, in that day. Uh, so that's exciting. The Temple Institute, uh, the Israel uh, Temple Institute there in Jerusalem, they have already got all the things ready that as soon as they get some kind of temple, doesn't have to be fancy either, they're ready to reinstitute the Old Testament worship under Moses. And it's fascinating. Every time I've been to Israel, we visit the Temple Institute. Just fascinating stuff. Now, every day in the news, the Middle East unrest. And so the stage is set. I personally know of no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. That's what we call it. It's the catching away of the church uh, before the wrath of God uh, comes in the tribulation period. And I know of no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. So it could happen today. (laughs) That would be great, wouldn't it? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But now, let's just say... The rapture is not going to happen in our day. Let's say Jesus is not going to come in our generation. Let's say that doesn't happen. Well, here's what you have to deal with. You're going to die. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? Well, if you're a Christian, it is good news. Not the process, just what's on the other side. And I'm looking forward to the other side. But let's just say we're going to die. Now, I'm not trying to stretch the text. I know he's talking about the return of Christ, but uh, still, let me just suggest the end of all things is near. Let's say the end of all things for us is not Christ's second coming or the rapture of the church. Let's say it's our death. Now, for me, I perk up because I'm 56 years old and I was saved when I was 19. So, you know, humanly speaking, I got less time on this planet as a human being unless some miracle happens. I'm on my way out. Some of you are older than me. You're closer than me, unless, you know, whatever God's will is. But you understand what I mean? I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase or not, but it goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. How many have never heard that phrase before? Never heard that statement? Never heard it before? Well, it's penned back in the 1800s by a guy named Charles Thomas Studd, uh, better known as C.T. for short, C.T. Studd. And he indeed was a stud in his day. He was in his day the best-known cricket player in the world. He attended Cambridge University. In his senior year at Cambridge, he was the captain of the cricket team. He had an illustrious future ahead of him as a professional athlete, but something happened along the way. Well, a few years before, at age 16, he became a Christian. His father, who was a wealthy man, became a Christian, prayed for his three boys, and did everything he could to see them saved. They were saved. Uh, C.T. gave his life to Christ at age 16. But then he describes his Christian life for those first several years as backslidden Christian. He never really got engaged, never really totally gave his life over to the Lord, even though he was truly a Christian. And something changed, though, while he was at Cambridge University. 
Uh, D.L. Moody brought his meetings to Cambridge, and C.T. went to some of those meetings. And at one of those meetings, God spoke to C.T. Studd powerfully and personally. And uh, he surrendered his life as a Christian guy. He felt a call to missions. And the first place he became a missionary was China. Uh, He realized that cricket and his career as a professional athlete was temporary. So he gave that up. Never went into professional sports. Ended up becoming a missionary because he realized cricket is temporary, but whatever I do for God will last forever. So he surrendered his life, became a missionary to China, later to India, and finally to Africa. While he was in China, uh, first few missionary years, his wealthy father passed away. CT's part of the inheritance amounted to, now listen, this is the 1800s, but it'd be the equivalent of $145,000 in our mind. Folks, that's a lot of money in the 1800s. You know what he did with the money? He gave it all away. He gave some to D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody started a school you may have heard of called the Moody Bible Institute. He gave some uh, to a man named George Mueller who was working with orphans. He gave some to a man named George Holland who was doing Christian ministry to the poor in London. And he gave the rest to the Salvation Army for their fresh work in India. Why did he give it all away? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's why he gave it away. But that's just one line. This comes from a poem that C.T. Studd wrote. Here it is. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years. Each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, Pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last... I'll hear the call. I'll know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last." Years later, as an aged saint, C.T. Studd wrote this last stanza to his poem. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Romans chapter 13 and verse 9. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. There's a host of scriptures I could go to. One more. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. No, it doesn't mean that. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Now with that introduction, and I know it was rather lengthy, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore... Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. A lot of forgiveness. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's humorous to me, without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... He should do it as one who's speaking the very words of God. And once again, Lord, I hear those words. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And that sets us back looking toward eternity, because the end of all things is near. Never saw until this particular time through this passage how connected these simple statements are. And I hope you'll follow along and really understand what the Lord's saying. Be clear-minded. It's actually one Greek word translated here, two words, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Because the one Greek word has both thoughts in mind. Be clear-minded. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, this is a Christian speaking. A clear conscience begins when one puts their faith in Jesus Christ and is born again. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Let me just go back quickly. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a 
Good conscience toward God. I'll never forget it. 19 years old when I prayed to receive Christ, and uh, he forgave me. And for the first time, I actually had a clear conscience before God. Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10, verses there tell us that none of the Old Testament sacrifices could clear the conscience of the worshiper. But once you truly are born again and know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, guess what? Clear conscience. Now the challenge as a Christian is to see that that clear conscience is maintained. Now we're saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, so don't misunderstand. But Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then he says, some have wandered from these. And he mentions a couple of guys, uh, verses 18 and 19, that have wandered from these. One being the clear conscience. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. One more. Second Corinthians, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Now, what would it take for me as a Christian, for you as a Christian, to defile my conscience, if you will? Well, I gave you one scripture. First Samuel chapter 24, especially verse 5. And I'll tell you what it's, the context is. King David uh, running from King Saul, or actually David's not king, he's been anointed king, but he's, he's a fugitive, basically running from King Saul who uh, is embittered against David. You, you probably know the story. One day David and his men happened to uh, run into Saul, uh, not literally, but he's in a cave. Saul's relieving himself in the cave. He's using the restroom. And David goes in and his men are encouraging him to, to, to get at Saul because they say, hey, the Lord's delivered your enemy into your hands. But David instead does something that while it doesn't take Saul's life or hurt him physically, uh, still it was wrong. David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And it says after he did it, he was conscious stricken. It bothered him because he knew what he had done displeased the Lord. And that's the bottom line. When I, as a Christian, do something that displeases the Lord, it affects my conscience. And the Holy Spirit convicts me if I'm the real deal. Now, what I do at that point is very important. Because if I don't do like David did then and confess it and then deal with it, then over time, that Defiled conscience becomes a seared conscience. And that's what Paul said happens to some guys, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. A seared conscience. What's a seared conscience? Well, it's synonymous with a calloused conscience. I could take a pen right now, and I've got calluses on my hands right here, and I could take a pen and I could stick it through this callus, and guess what? I wouldn't feel a thing. I could take that same pen, move it down one inch, and if I stuck it in, you'd hear me yelp. Why? Well, it's the same needle. It's the same point. But I don't get the point when I stick it through the callus because there's no feeling there. There's no sensitivity there. Because over time, it's developed a callus. You understand? A callous conscience becomes synonymous with what Jesus also referred to and other scriptures refer to as a hard heart. Now, if you get a Christian in this situation, you can confront them even lovingly in their sin, and they will not listen. They don't get the point. 
As a matter of fact, a Christian that comes to this place where they have, you know, allowed their conscience to become seared, callous, their hearts to become hard, they can even come to a place, and many of them do, where they justify their lifestyle. They justify their sin. They blame it on somebody else. Uh, I was talking to some of our pastors this past week and some of the marriage counseling we're having to deal with, including some that I'm uh, dealing with that I didn't go looking for. I hear, we hear, especially a lot of times these days, like I was talking to a husband recently and he was talking about uh, how all these years, how his wife has failed to fulfill him. And I I said, well, I I appreciate that and that may be true, but that's no grounds for divorce. That's no grounds for divorce. What does Ephesians say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But see, people that end up with a seared conscience, a calloused conscience, a hard heart, you can confront them with truth, even in love. And uh, they don't listen. They don't get the point. Vital, vital that we maintain a sensitive, clear conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Second thing is be self-controlled. Now, it's again the same Greek word. The idea is if I have a clear conscience, and, and here's the deal, it's being it's having a right mind. It's having a mind that's attuned to truth. That's what the clear conscience is. And if I'm in my right mind, in line with truth, I'm going to naturally develop and maintain self-control. That's what the word means. I'm in my right mind, so I'm naturally going to say no to sinful passions and yes to godliness. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, just means set apart for God's purposes. That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Self-control. Now, the downside of this is uh, we are living in the last days. The end of all things is near. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 prophesies what these days, 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 3, prophesies what these days will be like. Verse 1, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, etc., etc. But here's the clincher. Get, Get this one having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What kind of power? The power to make you Christ-like. These characteristics. These are people that confess to know Christ. These are people that may even be genuinely saved. I don't know. I am not, that's between, I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) But these are people that have a form of godliness. They may attend church. They may say, I'm a Christian, but there'll be no (laughs) self-control. If we do these things, then our prayer life continues to be effective. Listen, if I don't maintain a clear conscience and maintain self-control, what kind of a prayer life do I have? What kind of a prayer life? I mean, even in 1 Peter, back in chapter 3, husbands, verse 7, in the same way be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. That's just feminine. And as heirs with you, the gracious gift of life. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. If I'm not being responsible before the Lord in my relationship with my wife, I have no prayer life. God says, well, you, you get that right first, and then, then we'll talk. Then I'll give you a listening ear. You're involved in pornography. 
There's no prayer life. There's no effective prayer life. Involved in sexual immorality, no effective prayer life. Cheating on your taxes, what kind of prayer life do you have? No. No. Uh, you're a Christian, you cheated on the exam at school, what kind of prayer life? You see how these things are connected? Clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And then catch this fourth one. Above all, above all, love each other deeply. You've been listening to another edition of The Living Word with Pastor Danny Hodges. The Living Word is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. We're so glad that you took the time to learn some good things from the book of 1 Peter today. There are a lot of injustices that happen in the world, but guess what? This was happening during the Bible times too. In Peter's first letter, he reminds Christians that there will be unjust suffering, even if you do live a righteous life. Does that seem just a little unfair? Look at the example of Job in the Old Testament. He was a godly and upright man who endured much grief, pain, and loss on a personal level. Although these types of suffering are painful, God notices and sees your hurt, and He sees the persecution for standing up for Him, and He will reward you justly. If you've enjoyed hearing from Pastor Danny today and would like to listen to other teachings, feel free to visit our sermon archive at ccfstpete.church. If you don't yet have a church to call home, we would love to have you come join us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We meet on Saturday nights at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. Feel free to come just as you are. That's all the time that we have for today. But thanks again for tuning in with Pastor Danny to hear relatable things from the book of 1 Peter. Stay tuned for what God has for you right here on The Living Word.